If you uh, brought your Bibles today, and I hope you did, would you take them and turn to Acts chapter 18? Acts chapter 18, we're continuing today in this series that we've called Forerunner. This has been a study of the life of John the Baptist, and, and last week is kind of the next to the last week. We took a little bit of time to review uh, what we've looked at throughout the series from John's life, and, uh, and then we talked about what we saw in, in John's death and the way that we can live in order to continue, continue following Christ more closely. It's interesting, after John's death... He's really not mentioned many more times in the Gospels, a few times. Uh, you could probably think of some of them. Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and says, tell me, who are people saying that I am? And do you remember their response? Well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist come back from the dead. And so there's, there's like he's mentioned again. Um, uh, the... Um, the religious leaders question Jesus and they say, tell us, what makes you think you have the authority to talk like this and to do these things? And do you know what Jesus says to them? <laughs> like a good rabbi, he doesn't answer their question directly. He says, all right, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? It's just kind of a little interesting thing that happens there. There's a conversation in Luke at the end of the transfiguration, Jesus has been up on the mountain. You remember this? Peter, James, and John were with him. And, and, um, and Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. I don't know what that meant or what that looks like other than they were there. And the other disciples saw them. And, and there's a conversation. At the end of that conversation, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. And he says that John the Baptist was the Elijah that the Old Testament said would come before the Messiah. And then um, in Luke, Jesus' disciples say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples? And, and then there's this interesting teaching. I can only find it in Luke. It might be in the others, but I've only found it in Luke, where Jesus says that up until the time of John the Baptist, all the teaching was about the law and the prophets. That's what we would refer to as the Old Testament. But since the time of John the Baptist, Jesus says, and, and we would assume continuing on, the right teaching is about the kingdom of God. Those, that's like five reference, five mentions about John the Baptist after his death. Only five in the Gospels. So essentially, once John's body leaves the scene, we get the sense that his ministry or the impact of his ministry, it's run its course and it's come to an end. Until about 25 years later, so 20, by 25 years after John's death, roughly, give or take a few years, uh, things had advanced so much with the gospel that it had now moved into what we would call Turkey, into, into modern-day Turkey. There was a city there by the, by the name of Ephesus. Perhaps you've heard of it. We have the New Testament letter, Ephesians. It was written to the believers at the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, Ephesus, Turkey is about 650 miles from downtown Jerusalem, and it's a gateway between the continent of Europe and the continent of Asia. It's a, it's a significant city. And somehow... A quarter of a century after John has left the scene, lost his head, his ministry's over, John's name, John's ministry, the impact of his ministry, the legacy of his ministry 
begins to bear fruit or become evident in Ephesus. So what we want to do today is we want to, we want to look at kind of the closing chapter on John's life and say, how do we live our lives now in such a way that we can leave a legacy like John did? That even though everybody thought it was over and it was done, no one was talking about him anymore, poof, out of nowhere, there's still fruit. Let's look at that together. We're going to read from Acts chapter 18. I'm going to start reading in verse 24, and I'm going to read into chapter 19 down to verse 10. So follow along as I read and comment on Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Meanwhile, we're not going to go back and look what the meanwhile is. You can do that if you'd like later. Meanwhile, a Jew... So that's this, this, this man's ethnic and religious heritage. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, that's a Greek name, a native of Alexandria, which is where? Does anybody know? That's right. It's, it's in Egypt, and it's a premier city at this point in history. So right away, let's just set the, get the picture. We're talking about an African-born Jew with a Greek name. And you thought you had an identity crisis going on. So meanwhile, uh, this guy named Apollos, this African-born Jew with a Greek name named Apollos, he came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And what are the scriptures? We would call them the Old Testament. That's all they had. They didn't have a New Testament. You know, their Bibles were only half the width. Okay, that was a bad joke. Um, But he knew the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, that's Jesus, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos is an African-born Jew with a Greek name, who has a thorough understanding of the Old Testament and teaches and preaches passionately and accurately about Jesus. Why? How did he come by an accurate understanding of Jesus at all? It's right there. He only knew of the baptism of John. Somewhere along the line, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but somewhere along the lines, he was exposed to the teaching of John the Baptist, probably from disciples of John the Baptist who traveled down and spread the message that John was teaching with them. So the only source for this man's Christology, that's his understanding of Christ, was the teaching of John the Baptist and the Old Testament. Now, just pause for a minute and ask yourself this question. If your friends knew only about Jesus, what they learned from you, would they speak accurately about the person of Jesus Christ? Verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So it's not that Apollos was teaching anything wrong. 
He was accurate in what he taught about Jesus Christ. He was accurate about his teaching on the Old Testament, how they pointed to Jesus. But, but his theology, his understanding of God and his working, it needed some rounding out. It needed some more information, some more contour, some more perspective. And so it was a married couple, lay people, if you will, not a pastor, not a college professor, it was a married couple whose desire was to be obedient to Christ and, and to make disciples who made disciples, who took him aside and said, let us, uh, let us help you take your next step in your walk with Christ. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the only place in the whole New Testament that I can find where someone was rebaptized or was baptized a second time. And the only reason it happened is because their first baptism was not a baptism that understood the finished work of Christ on the cross. Verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So clearly what we have here in the passage we just read is not, um, is not an account of John the Baptist's life, right? He's mentioned twice, but, but only like his background information to give us an understanding where Apollos and this other group of believers, you know, where they came from and how it was that they had even a rudimentary but accurate understanding of Jesus Christ. And, and so what I'd like to do today, we are going to talk about some things that we can derive from John's life based on these verses that will help us leave a legacy. But what I want to start with is three gifts that this passage talks about that become legacy shaping for us, or, or they can be legacy shaping. What we do with these three gifts will shape the legacy that we leave once we're gone. Let's look at those three gifts. The first one is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we've read the story, in case you kind of missed the flow of it with all my comments, what happens is Paul is in Ephesus and he encounters some, um, some believers, some men 
who um, are, they, they seem from Luke's account to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is a crucial question. As a matter of fact, it's one that I wonder how each of us would answer if, if someone were to say to us in the lobby today after church, hey, Walt, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or, hey, Jim, did you receive the Holy Spirit? How would you respond if someone asked you that? That's important. It's important to know how to respond. It's important to know the truth. I remember reading a, a story or hearing a story one time about a, a pediatrician who was examining a young patient. And, and so to help the girl not be scared or apprehensive, each time he you know, used a tool to examine a different part of her body, he would, he would show her the tool and tell her what it does. And, and then as he was using it, he would ask her a question. So it went like this. He, uh, he grabbed the otoscope and uh, he said, I'm going to use this to look in your ear. The light comes out of this pointy end and it'll help me to see what's going on in your ear. And so as he looks in the little girl's ear, he says, do you think I'll find Big Bird in here? And the little girl just kind of remains silent. And so next he used the tongue depressor and he explained that he was going to use the tongue depressor to push down her tongue so he could see into the back of her throat and what was going on in there. And so she opened her mouth and he used the tongue depressor. And as he's looking in, he says, do you think I'll see Cookie Monster down there? And the young girl just remains silent. And so he shows her a stethoscope and explains that this is going to help him hear what's going on inside of her chest. And so, you know, he listens to her lungs and then, then he puts his stethoscope over her heart and, and he says, do you think that I'm going to hear Barney in there? And the little girl finally pipes up and she says, oh no, Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underpants. This is kind of the, the verbiage that we use. It's, it's a little misplaced, but this is how we talk about the, the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer. We say that when someone decides to follow Jesus, Jesus comes into their heart. When we just have it a little mixed up. What really happens is that when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to believers at salvation. As a matter of fact, Scripture talks about this. We're going to put some verses on the screen here. And in Romans, Paul is pretty clear in Romans 8, 9. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And then there's some other passages here that we won't read. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and John 14, 16 through 17, where you can read and begin to develop or expand your understanding that at salvation, if you're a follower of Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into your life. He took up residence. He, as, as long as you'll listen and be submissive and responsive, he'll continue to guide you. He'll convict you of sin. He'll help you understand God's word. Uh, he'll, he'll continue to grow you in righteousness. It's only because of the Holy Spirit that anyone can come to Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit, after we uh, cross that line of faith, is the one who continues to help us become more like Jesus, who works in our life and leads us in righteousness. Now, sometimes, I think we get a little confused about this for several reasons. One thing, sometimes at salvation, the Holy Spirit's work is immediately externally obvious. And for some folks, when they, when they decide to follow Christ... The work of the Spirit isn't, an ob isn't as obvious to others because it's internal. 
I mean, you know what I'm talking about here. Sometimes it's external and, and, and man, boom, that person's saved and they go to work the next day or they go home and people are like, something's different about you. And it's just obvious that God is doing something or, or strongholds, addictions and behavioral patterns are broken like that. And the, 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 the work of the spirit is immediately obvious on the outside. Sometimes it's not. And maybe that's your story. Sometimes when we follow Christ, it's not like we have an immediate breakthrough or things are suddenly different on the outside. But, but sometimes like Paul talks about, it's just a matter of our spirit testifying with God's spirit that indeed he is working in us. We are children of God. So one thing that confuses us about the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is that we don't always see it, but we take on faith that his work, the Spirit's work, is happening inside of us. I think another thing that can be confusing to us is, is, uh, is, is passages like this, where we see someone baptized. It says Paul laid his hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. And then they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So sometimes we get a little confused about the gift of the Holy Spirit because of what we read in scripture. And we, we begin to think, well, hold on a second. Like, I've never spoken in tongues. And I don't know about prophesying. That seems a little weird to me. I must not have the Holy Spirit because look what happened here. We have to be clear about what the Bible describes and what the Bible prescribes. So we have passages like this where the Bible describes people speaking in tongues and prophesying and doing other mm, more visible expressions of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes that several times. I mean, like back at Pentecost, you know, the disciples were in the room, the Holy Spirit came, they spoke in tongues. What was it? 120 people were added to the church that day. But interestingly, the Bible never prescribes speaking in tongues as proof or as evidence that the Spirit is working. I think of Ephesians 5.18 where, where Paul instructs believers, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he talks about how that could express itself. But I can't find any place in Scripture where, where Paul or any other Scripture writer says, and speak in tongues because of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul argues that, listen, there's more than one spirit at work in this world and in people. And people can speak in tongues through the work of other spirits, not just the Holy Spirit. Yet speaking in tongues can be a work of the Holy Spirit, he seems to argue in 1 Corinthians 12. It is a, it is a gift that the Spirit gives to believers and to the church. But there's greater gifts. There's other gifts. And this is the second gift that this passage talks about is, is the gifts from the Holy Spirit. The gifts from the Holy Spirit. So we have a, we have a sense, and, and it's developed later in the Bible, in the New Testament, that at salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to each believer, and he gives us spiritual gifts. These are abilities or, or, or special, eh, I don't like the word talents, but you know, special passions, special... Mm, I don't know. Uh, he, he, the Holy Spirit quickens us so that we can be part of edifying the church through the gifts that he's given us. The gift of tongues can be one evidence that the Spirit is working, 
but it's not the only one. And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful that um, we don't buy into this notion that if you've never spoken in tongues, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Spirit of God. That's, that's not true. That's not biblical. The Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people so that together we can work together and we can build up, we can edify our local church so that I can use what the Spirit's given me and you can use what the Spirit's given you and you can use and you can use and together we can accomplish for God's glory what he wants to accomplish in and through our church. For some people that may mean speaking in tongues. Uh, for different times and different places and different people it may mean but Paul seems to argue in other places that that's not always the case. It's not the only gift of the Holy Spirit, though it is one gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we're a follower of Jesus Christ, the question we ought to be asking, or one question we ought to be asking, we've already answered the one that we have the Holy Spirit. We would answer Paul if he said to us, when you were saved, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We would say, well, yeah, because, because Pastor Earl said, and it's in scriptures, and so now I'm clear on it, right? <laughs> We would say yes, but then the question we would be asking is now, what gifts has the Spirit given me to edify my local church? What talents and abilities, what, uh, what, what personality traits, what uh, experiences, what, what parts of my temperament, what, what am I passionate about, what, what influence has God given me so that for his glory, I can edify my local church and, and help us to continue to see God's word, uh, work amplified among us. So we're looking at three gifts that are legacy shaping. Uh, the first is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second is gifts from the Holy Spirit. And the third one is the gift of opposition. <laughs> the gift of opposition. And now if you're awake, you think I've just gone off the rails. Because we have no problem seeing the Holy Spirit as a gift. And if we've been around the church for a while, we understand that the Holy Spirit gives what we call spiritual gifts. But who would ever think of opposition as a gift? But notice what happened in the passage. The, the verses we just read, what happens is that... Um, Paul, after these men are baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit and he manifests his work in their lives through, through speaking in tongues and prophesying, it says he goes into the synagogue and he teaches. Now this, is Paul, this is what Paul usually did when he came to a new area. He would go into the Jewish synagogue and he would start by teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were, after all, God's chosen people. And, and the gospel was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So Paul always started in the Jewish synagogue. And it said he went there in Ephesus and he had some success. For three months, he continued to teach in the synagogue. But then something happened. The text says that some of the Jews in the synagogue became obstinate. Now pay attention to that. What the, test is, what the text is telling us is that most of the Jewish synagogue was responding well to the gospel. But there was a small amount of them that became obstinate. They hardened their hearts. They hardened their wills. They became stubborn. And sadly, this is how it usually works. The majority of the people don't have an issue. 
More, the majority of the people are listening and growing and striving to, to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple. But a few people become obstinate. And because everybody else remains silent, the minority have their way. And the work of God in that group of people is stifled. Well, Paul sees that. Paul sees the opposition and notice what he did. He said, fine, no problem. And he took the believing Jews from the synagogue and they went daily to a different place in Ephesus where he could freely proclaim the gospel. He said, fine, this field isn't working. We'll take the gospel somewhere else so that God's work can be done the way that God wants it to. And and know what? It was incredibly successful. For over two years, it says, Paul taught in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And did you catch the last sentence of verse 10? And both Jews and Greeks, all of them in the province of Asia, heard the gospel. They heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so catch this. Sometimes God uses opposition to catalyze a breakthrough in hard soil. Sometimes he uses opposition to move us into a new field. Sometimes God hardens the worker so that he can break through. Like Ezekiel, his name means forehead of flint because that's what he was going to need to accomplish God's will. He was going to have to keep going. Every brick wall he hit, he was going to have to move through it by the Spirit of God. Sometimes God hardens his worker, and sometimes God says it's time for a new field. Maybe we don't like to think of of God in these terms, but sometimes God gets fed up and says, fine, if these people won't listen to me, they won't listen to my messenger, if they won't be soft to what my Holy Spirit wants to do, we'll go somewhere else. And sometimes God says, no, we're going to get through this. Both of them are painful. Both options hurt. And so we have to make sure that we know what God's will is when we face opposition and conflict. Does God want me to cut and run? Is it time to go? Should I leave? Should I go somewhere else? Or am I supposed to dig in my heels here? Because God wants to do a greater work. It's tough to know. But opposition becomes the doorway through which God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out on a short-term mission trip, hey, if you come to a town, not if, when you come to a town or village and they reject your message, shake the dust off your sandals and move on. We don't like to think of it like this, but opposition is one of the Holy Spirit's greatest gifts to the believer if we will maintain a posture of submission to the Holy Spirit. So if it becomes clear that opposition is breaking out, that conflict is only getting worse, don't just cut and run. You may be short-circuiting what God wants to accomplish. And also don't just 
stick around because you've always done that. Because you may be short-circuiting what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish. We have to discern what does the Holy Spirit want us to do when he gives us this gift of opposition. Okay, so last week we saw John the Baptist. He was sitting in prison, life sentence, and he knew it. And what did he do? Do you, re- do you recall what John did? He sent his disciples, some of his remaining disciples, to Jesus, hoping that they would choose to follow him. Now, if anybody had earned the right to say, you know what, I think I'm done. I'm in jail. I'm not getting out. I think, I think it's okay if I'm just silent now, if I just stop doing what God has called me to do. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm done. It was John certainly at the top of the list of people who could say that. But John didn't quit. God had placed him on earth to prepare the way for the Messiah. And even prison wasn't going to stop him from doing that. And so what I want to do is I want to look at three legacy shaping actions that we we see and, and we can presume based on what we've read about John's life. The first one is don't stop early. Don't stop early. Beloved, I'm increasingly convinced that we give up and we walk away far too easily. We've gotten soft. We don't know how to deal with opposition in a way that allows God to accomplish in us and through us what he desires. Instead of considering it pure joy whenever we face trials and, uh, and hardships of many kind, like James talks about, we cut and run. We, we tuck tail and, and, and duck for cover. Why is that? You know, as we read biblical history and church history, it becomes increasingly obvious that every move of God and every lasting movement of the Holy Spirit sprung out of conflict or had to get through conflict before it happened. And it wouldn't have happened except for a person or a a group of people who said, yes, this is difficult and and, and yes, this is uh, the opposition beyond we can handle, but we are going to see God work the way that he wants to. We are not giving up. We're not running. We're we're not going to be silent. And yet increasingly our, our tendency is to minimize and avoid and run from conflict and opposition. Instead of facing conflict and opposition and dealing with it according to God's word so that God's spirit can use it to catalyze God's people for the work of God, we bow to our pleasure and our preferences. We quit. We run away. We we remain silent, sometimes for years or for decades, allowing the obstinate people to have their way. That's no way to shape a legacy for God's glory. Not for a person and not for a church. We cannot quit. We cannot give up, no matter what the opposition or no matter what the conflict. Number two, stay focused on the most important and let God handle the remaining details. Stay focused on what's most important and let God deal with the rest. As I read this passage, it it occurred to me that Paul and John went about ministry in two very different ways. Paul was a a missionary. He, He traveled aggressively throughout the world. He would take the gospel to a new place, and, and, and God had gifted him for this. 
He, would, he had the ability to convince intellectuals, and he had a great ministry among blue-collar workers. Uh, he, he apparently wasn't that good as a public speaker, but man, we still read his letters and they cut us to the core. Paul was savvy. He was politically savvy. He knew how to use his, his political rights to the point that it allowed him to take the gospel to the very heart of the Roman Empire. And then there's John. John never, as far as we know, really left the Judean wilderness. He had one, one message, and he would baptize whoever responded to that message. John wasn't that politically savvy. As a matter of fact, his dealing with politicians landed him in jail where he was beheaded. Although the king did listen to John before he beheaded him. So as we think about these two men, it's really no surprise. It wouldn't surprise us at all that a ministry like Paul's would be able to take the gospel to the city of Alexandria. Alexandria was a premier city in the Roman Empire. It was named after Alexander the Great. It had a robust Jewish um, subculture, if you will, of intellectualism. The, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it came to be in Alexandria. Uh, the great philosopher Philo, he was Alexandrian. It's, it would be no surprise at all that God would use Paul to take the gospel to an influential city like Alexandria. But notice that's not what happened. There was a man named Apollos who came from Alexandria who knew only John's baptism. Paul, as far as we never know, as, as far as we know, never went to Alexandria. And yet somehow God used John. John's message, John's mission, John's life to get the gospel to Alexandria. Now, I'm not saying that one's man, one man's ministry is better than the other. But what I'm pointing out is that each knew what they were called to do. John knew that he was called to prepare the way for the Messiah in the Judean wilderness. And, and, and that was it. And then he was done. And the rest was up to God. As a matter of fact, you remember last week, some of John's disciples said to John, Hey, that guy, Jesus, his crowds are getting bigger than yours. And what did John say? Good. He must increase. I must decrease. John knew what he was called to do. He knew what was most important for him. And he was okay with letting God take care of the rest of the details. He never developed a strategy or a plan to impact Alexandria. He never imagined, he, there, was, there, was, there was no intentionality about getting the gospel to Ephesus. Ephesus. John said, I know my purpose is to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's what's most important for me to do. I'm going to do that, and God can do with it what he likes. God can take care of the other details. And God did. God handled it in such a way that things John never could have imagined, never would have dreamed of, never even probably thought of a place named Alexandria or Ephesus. And yet because of his ministry, the gospel ended up there and ended up marking countless lives for God's glory. Focus on the main details, the most important things, and let God deal with the rest. And number three, make sure your legacy is about Jesus, not about you. 
Make sure that your legacy is about Jesus and not about you. The last verse of this passage just captures my heart. This went on, Paul preaching the gospel in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Biblical scholars believe that it's, it's probably this time in Ephesus, as Paul was ministering for two years in the lecture hall of, of Tyrannus, that a church was started nearby Colossia. We have the book of Colossians that Paul wrote to that church. Uh, there was probably a church started at Hierapolis, at Smyrna, at Pergamum, at Thyatira, at, at Sardis, at Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, and at Laodicea. Those are the seven churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. And, and, and biblical scholars say they probably started. They were probably planted here because Paul moved in and said, God wants to do a work here. And he continued to work at it. He allowed opposition to shape what he was doing for God's glory and by God's spirit. The gospel spread from Ephesus and these other churches were planted. This was probably the pinnacle of Paul's church planning ministry. And it was a significant catalyst, if not the most important catalyst, for the gospel to move from the Middle East into Asia. Why? Why did all that happen? There's, there's surely lots of reasons, but I would suggest that God in his sovereignty sent a man named John who would be faithful to the mission God had given him. And he raised up disciples and he pointed to Jesus. And, and when his work was done, he was okay with that. And he let it be done and got out of the way. And because of that, soil in Ephesus and soil at Ephesus, I mean, at Alexandria and at Ephesus was prepared for the work of the Lord that another person would do. John couldn't have planned that. He couldn't have strategized that. But because he said, the most important thing to me is Jesus, God did more than John could ask or imagine. And so I wonder, what about me? What about you? Is the most important thing to me Jesus? Or am I more concerned with me and what I want and what I prefer and what I like and what makes me comfortable and what's easy for me? Am I most concerned about what people think about me? Or am I more concerned with what they think about Jesus? Am I most concerned about how I'll be remembered when I'm gone? Or do I care more about if people will even remember Jesus? Am I concerned with my children following Jesus because of how it reflects on me as their father? Or because for my children to follow Jesus will be, would bring God great glory? Am I doing and behaving what I'm doing and how I'm behaving in my church because it's my church? Because listen, I've been here for years. Because I've poured so much into this church and I can't stand to see this thing or that thing happen. Or am I acting and behaving and playing the role I'm playing in my church because this is the bride of Christ? And I will do nothing to leave the bride of Christ with a black eye. 
If Jesus can love his bride regardless of how, you know, the challenges we, she has and the problems she has and how ugly she can be at times, then I can love his bride in the same way. Am I willing to hand off ministry to the next generation? And in some stages of life, this is the defining question about our legacy, whether it's about us or about Jesus. Because if we can't hand off, if we have to white knuckle everything we've ever done, and we can't let the next generation step up and God work through them in the way he wants to, clearly our legacy isn't about us. I mean, is about us. It's not about Jesus. So regardless of where you're at today, whether you're in the first quarter of your life and you're trying to figure out where your life is going and what you want it to look like, or if you're in the second quarter of your life and you're saying, I think I have some dreams and some desires and I believe they're from God and so here's what I've got to do to accomplish those and to move in the direction God wants me to, or, or if you're past halftime and you're going, ooh, how do I make first and second quarter me <laughs> pleased with what I'm doing and, 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 and you're working and you're grinding it out or if you're in your fourth quarter, and you look up at that clock, you see that it's getting closer and closer to zero. You know that the buzzer is coming. What are you going to do? Regardless of where you're at, you can set a trajectory now to leave a legacy like John did. You can decide now to live by the Spirit. You can decide now to use the gifts that the Spirit has given you and to fan those into flame for the edification of your church. You can choose now to not always run away when things get difficult, but to face the hard truth and do the right thing. You can choose now to not quit early. You can choose now to focus on what God has given you to do and to do that for his glory and let him deal with the other details. You can choose now to make Jesus the most important thing in your life. But you have to make that choice. Friends, it's amazing. I mean, just look at these verses we read. It's amazing what God can do with just one person who says, I'm going to be who God has called me to be. I'm going to make Jesus the most important thing. I'm going to run hard at what he wants me to do. And I'm going to let him take care of the rest. Could you imagine what it would be like if there was 150 people who said to God, do with me what you want. I'm yours. I'll focus on what you need me to focus on. I'll let your spirit move me and fill me and gift me and direct me. I'll make Jesus the most important thing in my life. You do what you want. I don't even care what outlasts me as long as it glorifies you, God. It's never too late to move in that direction. I'd like to close our series with the words that the gospel writer John used as he introduced John the Baptist. There was a man set from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light of Jesus so that through Jesus all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. May it be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example from uh, Acts about the, the legacy that a person can leave when they're committed to God's work, to the work of the Holy Spirit, to Jesus Christ being the most important thing. 
God, would you make us a people like that? Would you help us to see and taste and live in and live out your faithfulness so that those who come after us, 25 days, 25 years, 25 centuries, whatever, that it would be Jesus that they would see. It would be God's faithfulness they would experience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.